0: This is episode 15 of the no limits podcast welcome back my guest today is a hunter is a fisherman and is a chef who grew up in the small town of thibodeau louisiana received his bachelor's degree at john Fols culinary institute at nickel state university he participated in an exchange program with the paul gucuse Goucou- institute in lyon france after completing formal studies worked at a trois restaurant at the Domain Chandon Winery in Napa before moving to San Francisco to help open Epic Roast House as a sous chef. Uh, in 2007, he moved to St. Thomas, where he served as sous chef at two local restaurants on the island. 2009, moved to New York and joined uh, the team at Mielano. After four over four years, he was promoted several times and ultimately assumed um, several different uh, chef titles Gramercy Terrace at the Gramercy Terrace Park Hotel, uh, became executive chef at Blue Smoke Restaurant in New York. Um, he's also a solid believer and follower of Christ. We talk about the, the many moves he made in his amazing career, totally relying on God's plan and guidance. Uh, he has really had he's really have a, he really has an interesting perspective on food and cooking and faith and how he uniquely combines all of those components to lead others to the truth of the gospel is really it's really super interesting we we share a love of cooking especially being from louisiana um just our our love of of food and making other people happy through food is uh something that we share um, so let's get started with the executive chef of Blue Smoke Restaurant in New York and my homeboy from South Louisiana. Super, super excited to welcome Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois to the show. All right, all right. Good man. i had a bunch of. Like at school, I'll come out here because I got two acres. The building that I'm in now, the building that we're in now, is in the back of my property. So, you know, up the road behind me a piece is the main house, and it's full of women. <laughs> so,
1: the main house, the big house,
0: yeah. So, so, how many people mispronounce your name in New York when they see it? They have to,
1: because you got the Cajun last name like me. Yeah. Even, you know, I was saying your name actually today, yeah. and what I've realized is because I've spent so much time in fine dining, time in France, time learning correct French, Yeah, I want to pronounce your name like Gautier, not Gautier, like Pelche. Yeah. you know, because you yeah. pronounce it Gautier, right? Yeah. 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 And I always get corrected by my old man when I go home and I and I start <laughs> saying, I start saying like normal Louisiana <laughs> names and, yeah. and like correct
0: The way they're correct, right?
1: right. Like I don't mean to say that we're not correct, but so even I do it to other people, um, even yourselves. I was like, I was saying your name today, knowing that we were going on this. I was going on this podcast. I was like, make sure I don't say Gautier because that's not right, right? So
0: um, you'd be surprised what I answer to.
1: But (laughs) to answer your question about my own name, I mean, every day. Um, most people call me JP at this point, which I I prefer not being called JP in the, in the kitchen. I'm even chef or Jean Paul. And if you can't say Jean Paul, you can just call me chef as far. and, And as far as bourgeois goes, most people don't even try to, um, even try. Right.
0: No, because you get bo- uh, Buh borgius is borgius
1: Okay. Is, is all you know all the calls that I used to answer at my parents' house when you used to get like actual calls on your phone. Um, yeah. You know, from whatever. Uh, it was always borgius so that's how you knew that no <laughs> nobody was home by that name. That's right. <laughs>
0: uh, Mr. Gunther, uh, wrong number. <laughs>
1: no. It, yeah. It's it's kind of. You know, I feel like even my mom, um, she's from Franklin, Mississippi. Yeah. And she'll say, Jean Paul. You know, she'll have that, like, real strong kind of twang to it. Yeah. And so even that is, like, a little, um, sometimes she even has trouble saying my own name. So. Uh, What's no. on your
0: shirt, dude? Uh, this oh, is, there it is. Blue yeah. smoke. I got blue it. Blue
1: smoke. Yeah. You can see it that? looked
0: purple. I said, man, if there's some gold on there, we're in, we're in business. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, was a Blue Smoke. We just changed the logo, actually. So most of my oh, shirts that's so now. so fun, isn't it? Yeah. Now I got to get all new things and or whatever. So I guess there's worse things in the world, right?
0: That's right. So we're talking to Jean-Paul Bourgeois, um, executive chef of Blue Smoke Restaurant in New York. Um, solid brother in Christ, just a and a Louisiana boy. Now talk to me about. So we we know that people butcher your last name because they butcher mine. So how in the world? I mean, you have gone from man. You've had just an incredible career and been to some amazing places. How does a guy from a small town of Thibodeau receive his bachelor's degree at John Falls Culinary? Right.
1: That's
0: right. Um, then you go to Lyon, France, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you get your, and, and then what Napa. Yeah. So, winery in Napa in San Francisco.
1: Yeah. I mean.
0: How does that even, dude, that's crazy. How does that even happen?
1: At a young age, when I was uh, growing up, my parents, we had, um, we did an exchange program with a French cu- French class. Um, I forget what schools even. I was nine years old to about 13 years old, and we participated in this so basically, we housed a French teacher in our, at our house in Lavityville, Louisiana. And um, we became really good friends with her. Her name's uh, Nadine. Her husband's name's Patrick. Uh, they're retired now, just south of Paris. We still keep up with them. But that kind of led, that whole introduction to, um, to Nadine and Patrick led us as a family traveling to France three times before I was 15 years old. Uh I have fond memories of trying my first scallop in France yeah. learning how to play badminton in France how weird is that and I still love playing badminton <laughs> watching the Tour de France three times and seeing um seeing our boy Armstrong win it twice Yeah um and so I think during that age when just being that age and seeing uh, being exposed to that at a very young age it just kind of fed my curiosity about food Right, Um, and essentially that's where it was really the seed was planted, and that's why, uh, and so it it all my travels everywhere I've worked whether that be Napa whether I actually lived in Atlanta for four months and did R and D for Popeyes um, and worked in that their R and D test kitchens and corporate headquarters in Atlanta, all of that has been fed by my need and curiosity to eat different foods of different cultures and cuisines and kind of see the world through food yeah so um that's you know uh, most of the time i've had a full-time job you know california uh, that's what, that was my first culinary job out of culinary school uh and then saint thomas in the virgin islands uh, i worked there for uh 15 months and then um then new york now for 10 years so why wow, it's uh, been 10 years now 10 years wow. yeah wow 2009, I moved to New York, um, uh, late 2009, so just Mm -hmm. about 10 years. Mm. And so it's just really been fed by food, um, that curiosity of mine, Uh, uh, the world that we travel. I just came back from a 14-day vacation, making up um, six cities, four countries, uh, one continent. (laughs) Uh, And all of that, you know, we really, of course, we do all the touristy things, but we eat. And we love to see um, the world around us, the people around it, the people around us through the food they eat. Yeah, you hear that a lot through a lot of these travel food shows. And, yeah. But it's but it's a true and real way to see and understand people's culture, at least from an outsider's point of view. You'll rarely ever get invited to somebody's home and them share a history of their of their family tree and the food they cook. So the best right. you can do is really try to get in and eat with locals, you know. And if you can make some friends along the way, then that's a plus. So. Yeah. Um, just so happened I've called New York home for ten years. Um, you know, same same kind of thing. I was just small town kid of fifteen thousand people from Till Louisiana, and I moved to a one of the uh, the food meccas of of um, of the United States of nine million people. Yeah. And, um, the borough, the neighborhood I live in, is literally the neighborhood of Astoria in Queens. Um, is probably. You know, 10, 15 times the size of the biggest, of the biggest city, uh, in Louisiana, New Orleans. You know, like it's probably a million people just in my neighborhood. So it's crazy, but, um, but it's been an interesting place for me. I gotta say, because I met my wife here. Thank God for that, or I'd probably be face down a gutter in New York. Is she she's in New York. She's native to New York. No, she's a she's a Texan. She's from Midland, Texas. Um, she came here for a similar reason, but in fashion. Uh-huh. So in New York, um, you know, one of the yeah, many- Midland,
0: Texas is not known for its fashion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it certainly right? is not. It certainly is not. You know, and she has a really um, um, amazing story as well. Uh, she her her dad was. Uh, he, he had passed, he's passed three years now. Uh, he was a music minister at First Baptist Church in Midland. Mm -hmm. Her mother, um, runs a, uh, battered women's shelter called Midland's Fair Havens in Midland. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she wanted to move to New York, um, so that she could use fashion to connect with people and hopefully spread the word of Christ through, through, um, empowering women and through the clothes they wear and so she has her own story of how christ brought her to this big city from midland texas i have my own story but mine wasn't um so at least i didn't i didn't i never recognized the connection between christ and my kind of searching for something uh Mm -hmm. all my life um until probably a, a few years ago so um you know christ is Use food in my life to connect with people all over the world, and for a long time, I thought it was just you know let's just go eat and eat and eat and taste new things. But in the background, he's kind of been playing his cards and and moving his chess pieces to make uh, to have me connect with people. It's just through food he's done that.
0: He'll do that, man. He did that. I mean, that's how our whole waterfowl Ministry was was mm-hmm. started. You know, it's just. He uses things that are that are just deeply entrenched in your soul and things that you love to connect with other people that have those same types of passions mm-hmm. to where y- you can clearly identify and connect with people on that common ground, and then they see that there's something different about you and they want that and that, that's 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 especially true what i've found and you're a big hunter too so you you know that um that man you're out there and you see the world wake up this world that he created and it's inevitable somebody's going to go man how can you look at this and say there's no god well romans 120 says you can't um, and so it's just such a natural ministry field for us and i, I think maybe that um the, the food the, the food portion wouldn't, or the food aspect of it wouldn't necessarily jump out at me as a ministry,
1: but that's what makes it so cool. Yeah, you know what, um, this past Sunday, we were, uh, Easter Sunday, and uh, the, I thought our, our, our pastor was going to give us kind of, I hate to say, the same old resurrection story. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean. I mean, it's Sunday, Christ is risen, thank God. Um and we know that we know that's a part of Easter Sunday, but he decided to take another route and talk about, um, how Jesus, before he ascended to his father, um, uh, met with some, uh, doubters, some, um, some people who were, um, you know, disenchanted with leaving Jerusalem and, and saying, man, I can't see what just happened. And, um, just around some of the stories about Jesus appearing to different folks, uh, in between.
0: Did he talk about the Emmaus road, the two guys on exactly, the Emmaus road? Exactly. Yeah. And how he sat, that sat
1: and ate and, and, and cooked fish and broke bread and, and started, you know, kind of really just asking them questions until finally they were like, Oh wait, you're, you're, you're Christ. And then he was gone. And, and I think so much, um, I think so much about food and how that brings us together, and how Jesus used it in His own ministry to uh, bring folks together. Obviously, the Last Supper is a famous one, and breaking the bread and then multiplying bread and fishes is obviously a very famous story in the Bible. Um, but he, but if you really break it down, um, stories after stories, food is used to uh, bring His ministry to life, and right. uh, and. And that's and that's where I've really tried to take cues from Christ when it came to my own profession is how can I use this for good yes mm-hmm. it is my way of life it's how I make a living how how what else is he asking me to do through that because there's there's a certain calling in me that feels like I am using the gift he gave me um, yeah. and I'm and I'm proud to do that and I want to exercise that gift every day yeah uh, but how can I do it to also um, continue His ministry that He left to us to right. continue to minister to others, to those who are hungry, to those who are less fortunate, to the those who are seeking uh, a, a better way. And so um, I haven't figured it out yet, you know, but... One, we'll figure
0: it out one day yeah. with Him.
1: Well, I think part of a big part <laughs> of figuring it out is having these conversations with folks like you and just yeah. talking about it and bringing it out into the open. So maybe somebody that listens to this podcast can connect with it. Maybe they have some ideas for me and how I can no get doubt. plugged in. No doubt. Maybe they'll get something from this conversation. But
0: Yeah, and, and you know the part, so the stories that you're talking about, um, one of the ones that like the two guys on the Emmaus Road, and so guys that tuned in thinking you were going to hear about cooking, you are. Um, just bear with us for a second. Um, what I love about that story is how he kind of played a little trick on these guys he's like you know so what are y'all talking about and said are you the only jew in jerusalem that doesn't know (laughs) the things that have happened he's like what things and they're like dude are you kidding me and he walks with them for a ways and they say come stay with us and he's like nah i really got to get going like they have to twist his arm right i mean he's playing like so it it speaks to his personality that he wasn't just always this ultra serious austere fellow that you know spoke in riddles and you know was like like kept everybody in an arm's length he loved people yeah and the other one you were talking about having you know cooking the fish on the beach that's in john 21
1: yeah when he, when uh, peter went back to being a fisherman correct yeah a naked yeah. fisherman because he had yeah. to get
0: dressed before he jumped over the side of the boat but um he it, it you get this sense of Jesus walking up the shoreline while these guys are out fishing, kinda of like a Taurus with his hands in his pocket, right? And then scripture says he kept himself hidden from them. So they didn't know who it was. And he's like, Yo, catch anything? Yeah, you know, typical Taurus question, like when you see somebody fishing, like, Oh, how you doing? You catch anything? And then he says, Try the other side of the boat. And they do and the, you know, the nets are full and they're hooked all over again. Cause that's how they met him the first time. Like I get goosebumps talking about it. Yeah. Um, but then here's the really cool part. So he, he played a little cat and mouse hide and seek with him, right. M- pure personality. And then when they drag the boat up on the beach, he doesn't say, you know, meet me at the synagogue for a Bible study or no, he has a cookout on the beach with his boys. With his best friends, and I'm like, that it's it's so not religious that it's not even
1: funny. And just to and just to rewind that three days before that, it had all fallen apart. It all fallen apart. Not only that, Peter had denied him mm-hmm. three times, and I believe. And yeah. while he was sitting there, right, he he sat on the beach said, "Peter, do you love me?" Yeah. Peter says, "Of course I love you. You know that." And he asked him three times, right? Yep. Um, and I, you know those are i was so happy to to hear that sermon on sunday because it did reorient me to not just the resurrection not the death on the cross and the resurrection but the things that happened in between that were um you know really speaks to uh, to your point uh yeah. Christ's personality in forgiveness and saying you i'm still going to build my rock i'm still going to build my church on you peter you're my rock and even though you know yeah. didn't have to mention that you denied me three times but uh, no he
0: put that as far as the east yeah. is from the west I mean that's old stuff yeah
1: you know it's old and, news you know if we obviously um it's not as easy to forgive and forget like uh like he made it seem to be but right. um that's certainly um uh, there's yeah. certainly just a wonderful message to hear on Sunday yeah.
0: And it's good. So guys that are thinking that you have to be really religious or you have to be perfect or you have to look a certain way, talk a certain way, eat this, don't eat that, drink this, don't drink that, that's got nothing to do with what you and I are talking about. Mm. Um, That's, Jesus was the, (laughs) he, for all the things that he was, he was not a religious guy. As a matter of fact, the people that he had the biggest problems with were really religious people. Mm. That, I mean, that's a fact. So, but let's talk about, um, take us through, like, so the, the journey, like I started kind of going through your journey, take us through that, like the, the steps along the way, like starting with, so you recognize, you recognize this book.
1: That's my dog. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, um, that is John Fultz, his, uh, encyclopedia of Cajun and Creole cuisine, which, you know, cooking in Louisiana I don't know, you can't really put, it's hard to define how important it is to us, but everything revolves around food here.
1: Well, it's kind of a religion in itself, uh, in a way, you know, and um, um, there are certain rules and traditions you break, and then there's some some you move forward and evolve. Uh, And John has been uh, on both ends of that spectrum. Really honoring the past and through the Encyclopedia of the Cajun Creole Cuisine, really digging in deep to the histories of Louisiana and all the immigrant um, and the uh, immigrant countries that settled Louisiana, whether yep. that's by force or by not, because uh, there were there's plenty of ugliness in that history as well. Oh yeah. Uh, but he does a he does a great job at honoring it through food and uh, through food ways. He's also been uh, quite a master at. Um, uh, preserving the the history of louisiana all by pushing it forward through um whether it be rum and whiskey making now that he does on the plantation or milling his own grits and getting back to some of those and finding those heirloom grits that are or corn that's maybe at one time was thought to be extinct right and really kind of bringing that back towards the thing so yeah i, I graduated uh john Falls culinary institute in no, 2000- 2000 do
0: people know what to do with grits in new york
1: um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think so. I mean, Cause I, I
0: asked for him and they're like, what's a, like my cousin Vinny, what is a grit?
1: No grits. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, no, I, I think it, in, in New York, there's often times where you have to find points of reference for people and connect the dots for them. Right. And so, Saying it's like Polenta's cousin isn't a bad thing for me. I got you. I mean, I they're both you. they're both of the same thing. But. All
0: right, but go, I, so I got you off track. So so take us
1: through. Um, so you're at Nichols, right? Yeah, uh, Nichols until 2006. Got a bachelor's of science degree from Nichols. During that time, I had spent four months in Atlanta when I was a sophomore in college, um, doing uh, research development with Popeyes, uh, and then. Um, uh, my senior year going into my senior year, I did exchange program in Lyon, France with, uh, the Paul Bocuse Institute in Lyon. And that's, um, and like I told you, I'd spent some time in Paris and France and my, like my younger years. And that was really like four months to be in there. That was really me saying, man, I could, I could see more of this world. This world has a lot more to offer. I love you, Louisiana. I love you, mom and dad, and I love you, family and friends, but this guy has got to see more and experience more. And I was just, I still am. I'm, I'm, I'm as hungry for experiencing new cultures and new cuisines and new worlds more than most things, uh, physical in my life. Uh, I just, I really, I really crave that. Um, and so that that led me into moving to Napa in 2006. That was my first cooking job out of culinary school. I worked at a restaurant called uh, Etoile, uh which mm-hmm. was uh, the restaurant Domaine Chandon Winery. Um, I did that for about two years until I moved to San Francisco and got my first sous chef job um, with uh, uh, Jan Birnbaum, who passed away last year with a, in a restaurant called Epic Roast House. Now, Jan. Was the reason why I connected with Jan? Um, he was, uh, on the early shows of, uh, cooking with Michael Kiorella in Napa. He mm-hmm. had once had a restaurant called the Catahoula, which for those who, uh, are Louisiana's, Catahoula Hound is Louisiana's state dog. That's right. Well, you might have guessed we, uh, that Jan Birnbaum is from Opelousas, Louisiana. And he, mm-hmm. he was, he was, uh, he was Paul Proudhon's protege, Um uh, back in the early days of K-Paul's and so on. And so he had worked with Paul for years and moved to California, opened up Catahoula, uh, closed Catahoula in Napa, then opened up Epic Rose House where I got to work with him. And that was our kind of Cajun connection. And he was tough, man. He was uh, still to this day the toughest chef I've ever worked with. Really? How Uh, so? His his insistence on perfection was... um, was at times felt impossible uh it was demanding beyond um beyond healthy in a lot of ways um, yeah. and he had a lot of health issues kind of probably had a lot to do with stress in that way right um and which is stress not stress uncom- and butter yeah which is not <laughs> uncommon for chefs right <laughs> uh he was and he was a he was one of those just old school chefs you know he would he would yell, and he would he would um, do those things that made you feel small, mm-hmm. even for a big man like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I learned a lot from him, and he and I as as much as that was a really difficult job, I learned a lot more uh, good things than I did bad things. Right, and right. Uh, that's all you can really ask for somebody uh, who's your teacher and mentor and chef, right? And he was really he was a really great chef. He had a really keen understanding of like food done right and simple and just making it really tasty. And being from Louisiana, I think that was inherently in his blood too. Uh, and it was great to better to share that with San Francisco and for people who may have never been to Louisiana. So right. really proud of the, the time I had with him. Um, then I moved to St. Thomas and St. Thomas was a little bit of break wow. for me. Uh, you know, funny and funny, weird as it is, um when I left Epic, I was twenty-three years old. You know, and I had taken on this big new opening restaurant in San Francisco, and it was a big deal to open this restaurant in San Francisco. It was on It was a high kind of a, a high profile place at the time, and that and there was this feeling that I was like, you know what, John Paul? Like, I graduated a year and a half ago before I got this job yeah. maybe I was taking myself a little too seriously too fast and I wasn't gonna enjoy like being a cook you know and so I kind of mm. I went back to cooking uh, for two years in in st Thomas and when I when I was when I was researching where to go it's Weird as this is going to sound, I—I I, the only thing I could think of was weekend at Bernie's. Have you seen weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> it was meant. It it was it was uh staged in Florida, but it was said that it was St. Thomas. So right. when I when I I all I can think of was like how great that space was at weekends and weekend at Bernie's, and how I wanted to be on the beach and kind of live that life. And so, I packed two of my biggest duffel bags. I sold everything. Um because I didn't put anything in storage, I was in Nap. I was in San Francisco at the time. I Went from San Francisco to St. Thomas, and I didn't have a job. I had never been there. Nobody would hire me without me like interviewing. All right, and so you
0: just you didn't have anything lined up. You just picked up and left.
1: Yeah, I had I had interviews lined up. Okay, but, but I couldn't. I could, I was too broke to fly there, interview, fly back and collect my stuff, right? Like, so I, I had to trust my ability to cook and, Uh um, and it worked (laughs) and I spent about 18 months. Um, um, I actually became a sous chef there too, but it was so chill. I cooked every night. I never even considered myself a sous chef, right? Like or management or whatever. And I oversaw two restaurants that were kind of had adjoining kitchens. Now,
0: explain uh, real quick, because some people might not know what a sous chef is. So explain that real quick.
1: Well, it it, uh, it translates directly into under chef. Right. But it's basically a manager, and you have an executive chef or a chef de cuisine, then you have sous chefs, which are... Uh, just, they do the ordering and scheduling and the kind of grunt work of chefs. Yeah, okay. Uh, and they often cook too all the time. Yeah. So in this position, I cooked all the time, which I loved. Um, and then one of the things I like to do is walk the dining room and talk to guests and really just kind of oh, yeah. be, that, be that guy, that presence. And as we kept doing that, and as we were creating our own kind of style of cooking, uh, there was a lot of uh, tourists that would come down from Boston, New York, DC, all along the East Coast, quick flight, no passport needed. And um, you know, in the cold months in the northeast, where do you want to be? Well, you want to be in 75, 70 yeah. degree weather on the no, beach. No. Um so they would come down and I would have these conversations and um I just I I was get I was feeling called to go to New York, one, just because I need to be challenged, but also a lot of the feedback was saying, hey man, like you should come to New York and do what you're doing because there's nothing like that going on. What, so what was so
0: different about it? What were you doing that was so different?
1: Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, for a small island of St. Thomas, there had never been um, a lot of classically trained chefs that really wanted to dig into the food culture of the Caribbeans. Oh, okay, <clears throat> and combine that with classical. French and Italian techniques
0: which So it's really like a fusion. I mean you were doing fusion kind of stuff there.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that that word has gotten a bad rep.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that later on. <laughs> um we
1: look, what all all we can do as chefs is use all the um all the things that we eat, taste, see, learn. And we develop our own palettes. And when I say not pal- not palette in your not palette like the roof of your mouth, but like a painter's palette. Mm-hmm. Right. And all those different colors our experience or flavors or taste or textures or salty and sweet and all those different things that happen in that palette. And we just take our brush and dabble. Right. And it's part of our creative process to use all those colors or those experiences to create something unique. Maybe that's fusion. Maybe that's just kind of an artist taking approaches from others and making something on right. his own. And I think that's what people were seeing. People were just seeing our identity and our history come to life on plates. Uh, and essentially, that's what every chef does and that cooks. every Whether you're a chef in a restaurant or a chef that's cooking at home for your family, or not even a chef, or just somebody that's cooking, now you're just mm-hmm. taking experiences, right? And just putting them on plates. And so... Um, we had something, we were doing something interesting for a lot of people. And um, people recognized that and kind of said, what are you doing in St. Thomas? You know, it's <laughs> like a one-horse town on a beach and, you know, right. it's, it's a fluid, it's a, a kind of a transient island and because mm-hmm. uh, nobody can spend too much time there. It's, it's pretty fun in that way. And so I kind of took that and I ran with it and I started looking at apartments in new york and then i quickly realized i couldn't afford any of this (laughs) (laughs) and so um but so but i knew i knew i was good enough so i did exactly what i did in in st thomas i packed my bags again and i had interviews um lined up but i didn't have a job i didn't have a place to stay i knew i knew one person she was um my best friend's fiancé's cousin. And she had a... Yep. She had a... Um, basically... So I had a full-size bed in the room. And you can only get off... Get out of the bed from the front. Because there was only <laughs> a foot of space on one side there. So once I was all the way to the, at the wall, there was only a foot of space on the right side. It was a full-size bed. And there was about three feet in front of me. Three grand a month. Um, I think... <laughs> I think I paid um, seventeen hundred dollars for that room. A month. Holy! Uh, that was ten years ago, dude. That's so, my house note. So <laughs> it's crazy, and, and that's how it started. I had I had enough money for about three months of rent, and uh, I found a job uh, right away uh, at the Oak Room at the Plaza Hotel, famous famous space in Midtown Manhattan, right on Central Park. Uh, and the Oak Room was like where the Beatles used to come back mm-hmm. in the day. Like, you know, it was like the place to be. It's closed now. Um, but that was where I got my start. And, um, I cooked there for about nine months until, um, I found a restaurant called mylino which is a Roman Italian restaurant, which is part of our USHG or Union Square hospitality group family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the restaurant group I work for currently. And, um, and, uh, that was December of 2010 I believe and um and that's where I got my first I was a line cook there and I worked my way up into a sous chef and then I became um I I saw kind of the writing on the wall that I knew I wanted to grow but I wanted to make connections with some of my distributors so I became the I kind of wrote my own job description (laughs) yeah and um I became kind of the food purchaser for all of Myelino and uh, the food for the Gramercy Park Hotel where Myelino was located in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so really kind of making those connections with all the New York distributors and the farmer's market and so on. And then became the Chef de Cuisine, the Gramercy uh, Park Hotel Terrace, where we did um, a lot of banquet style food and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that was a great gig. And I was having a lot of fun. I had a lot of freedoms. I get to play with expensive food and um, uh, but I, um, you know, I'm, I'm still a coon ass at heart and as long in <laughs> and the, and the, further I got away from that, yeah. uh, the more I felt called to kind of cook, um, cook that more and more. Mm-hmm. And so finally I went to Danny Meyer, which is my big, big boss. And I said, man, I really love working here and I wouldn't work for anybody else in New York, but I need to get back to cooking food that, you know, really speaks to me and something I know kind of really personally and intentionally be a part of that type of program and he had said, Well, I can't promise you Cajun food, but I can give you the next best thing. What do you think about barbecue? And so uh I was like, Barbecue, well I mean I never cooked barbecue professionally and I've eaten it, you know, I can eat a rib just like every other, you know, man. But uh I you know, I just didn't have a lot of experience cooking it. So but of course, um I that those type of I wouldn't have moved to New York if I wasn't okay with being uncomfortable. Right,
0: right, right,
1: uh, and so I, 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 love that feeling of restlessness and that uncomfortableness of uh, not knowing what's next or not understanding it all. I like the puzzle pieces and putting that together. Yeah. And barbecue has proven to be my biggest challenge. You know, I never went to Rome before working at Myalino, but I picked up Italian food pretty quick. I picked up making pasta, cooking pasta, and doing that pretty quick. Um French food, like I, I've cooked all these different cuisines, lived in, lived in the Caribbean and kind of unplugged all those different things and broken that down and rebuilt it back up and created new food. But barbecue, barbecue out of everything that you think of how cheap it should be or how, you know, you don't need a college degree or even high school degree to cook it. It is one of the most, if not the most difficult genres of food to create. And to really? continually, continuously cook on a high level. To
0: be to be consistent. The quality to be consistent, you mean,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. That's, well, to to consistently do it well on a high right. level. Why um, do you think
0: it's so different? Like, I look at French food, and so, being from Louisiana, all right, if I had a dollar for every pot of roux that I stirred from my grandmother, don't let it burn, mm-hmm. um, my house would be paid off. Mm-hmm. And so... I know now. Like I've sent you some of the pictures of some of the things that I cook, just to like make you wish you were back in Louisiana. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, taking either a dark roux or a blonde roux, and then doing something with with like a a, a a cream sauce or something like that. It the the figuring out French food other than pastries. You know, if you're if you're like a, a pastry chef or whatever. It's but. Figuring out that stuff, it all kind of has like the same base, um, being like the, the blonde butter roux and, and cream sauces and things like that. It it's not it it the flavors and the tastes are amazing, but it's not that difficult to figure out. Mm-hmm. Right? Why why is barbecue so different when you look at like all the different Italians and making your own pasta and, and French dishes and things like that? Why is barbecue so difficult to kind of master um
1: well that's 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 actually a pretty easy um there's i wouldn't say easy to answer but when you really distill it down it's very simple um there is no brisket alike not mm. one that you get in a box is alike it's different sizing it's different fat ratios it comes from a different cattle altogether. Livestock in general, whether it be pigs, chicken, or, or beef, or cattle, are all different species to species. That alone is enough to make you squirm at night. Mm. Um, but then it's unforgiving. And what I mean by that, if you overcook a brisket to where it's dry, there's no refiring that. It's 16 hours out. Right. You burn a roux, and I can get that back to the same spot in an hour if I want to rush it. Mm. Right. A, 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 a seasoned roux maker can mm. rush it. Right. In an hour. Um, but you can re, you overcook a ribeye. I can refire that and get that done in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, you overcook a brisket. You got to make a choice. Either you don't have brisket today or you got to serve brisket you're not happy with mm. or it's dry. And that goes for baby back ribs, spare ribs, chicken, and so on. And so it's unforgiving in that sense. The second thing is, is that despite all your rubs and your sauces and so on, it really only makes up a small percentage of what you're actually serving. And so it can't hide behind sauces, cream sauces or ruse or, or so on and so forth. The meat is the meat. And so um, if it's dry or under seasoned or overcooked or mushy or those different things, the skin's not rendered, fat's not rendered, so on and mm. so forth. There's no covering that up. There's no corrective action, so to speak, in barbecue. It's all it's,
0: hanging out there for the world to taste.
1: Yep. Yeah. And that's yeah. what makes the consistency part extremely difficult is that you have to – it's not It's not pasta where you say, okay, I have 64 grams of egg yolk. I have 150 grams of flour. I mix, knead, and I'm ready to put in through the machine. It's mm-hmm. not a re- it's it's not a recipe that you follow. Barbecue yeah. is a is the rub is a recipe. And then you put it on the meat and you cook it. <laughs> yeah. And and you cook it at a certain temperature for a certain time to a certain degree. But even if a brisket temp's at 192 and it's still tight, you got to let it go. You got it's a feel um mm-hmm. feel thing. So that's what makes it so much of a craft. It's more it's more comparative to making like dry salamis or charcuterie, prosciuttos, and, and those dry cured hams that the Spanish and the French and Italians make than it is any other thing. That has a 12, some, you know, six month to a 12 month out lead time, which almost makes it that much more difficult. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, they they're, but in the same sense, it's, it's, this, you're doing the same thing. You're curing with smoke and salt and barbecue. And when making charcuterie, you're curing through salt and thyme. Mm. Um, and so in the, it ha, it it has more in common with that uh, those techniques than any other technique. Um, now,
0: how did you learn though? Because you said that like you that wasn't you know that wasn't yeah. your strong
1: suit. So. They didn't teach barbecue class in culinary right. school. Right. You know, I didn't grow up with a dad and. Grandfather that owned right, barbecue right. joints on the side of the road. I can look uh, through the
0: book that you helped to write, and I don't see a lot of barbecue.
1: No, like no, there's not. And even if it is, it's probably barbecue shrimp, which right, right, like it's really not nearly not do, do barbecue. barbecue shrimp in the oven. <laughs> so, how did I learn? I ate. Uh, I ate my way through Texas. I ate my way through the Carolinas. I ate my way through Memphis. I ate my mm. way through Kansas City and St. Louis. Yeah. I cooked, I cooked, I cooked my butt off until I figured out, like, what I liked, right? I got to eat all these different, and again, this is just part of the palate, right? I need to develop my palate of barbecue, and that's why I had to eat as much as, I had to try all these different regions, and I had to develop what Jean-Paul liked, right? right? I had to develop, like, what kind of style of barbecue do I like to cook? I know what kind of like to eat, but is that necessarily what I like to cook? An even more important question, is that what the people I'm feeding in New York want to eat?
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You hope they like what John Paul likes.
1: Yeah. They're not – um and, look, that's the biggest issue with chefs is that we get all caught up with what we like to cook. We yeah. get all caught up with what we like to plate. And oftentimes when chefs lose sight, of their business is because we stop, we don't stop and to think about what do my guests want to eat and who am I really cooking for? Because really the menu that you put forward, it should be about 90% for your people Mm -hmm. and about 10% for you. And if you're lucky enough, 10%, maybe there's more than 10% are for your, the people, the thing that you love to cook and you put your heart and soul and you really believe in is the same thing that those people really like to eat. Like, for example, I can't say that making coleslaw is this some this deeply ingrained food item that I am passionate about. Right. Of course, I'm going to make the best dang coleslaw I can make and I'm going to make it taste good as much as I can. But really, coleslaw is on the menu because people believe and for good reason that coleslaw should be on a barbecue menu. Mm -hmm. Right. It's up to me to make, make the best dang coleslaw that I know how to make. Right. right. But it's not something I'm personally invested in and going to live and die by. Right. But I know that needs to be there for the people. Yeah. Right. And, um, and barbecue is for the people, man. It is a blue collar food. It can be eaten by royalty, if you will, but it was, it historically comes from cheap cuts of meat and people that didn't have a dime to spend. Yeah. And, um, it's oftentimes, you know, you got to put yourself back into that back into that kind of mind frame of like, you know, I am for, I am cooking for the construction worker that wants a pulled pork sandwich for eight bucks, mm-hmm. you know, and not a um, a filet mignon for $32 with this. Like, that's right. not the food we cook, you know, right. and so.
0: But, you know, there's something in what you just said, and it's like, well, um, how do you, because you, I, I I am, for for the big duck camp that I belonged to, was 40 or 50 guys, you know, all from Mississippi, pretty much. Um, I was the coon ass that came up and made the gumbos and the jambalayas. And the and the way that that stuff came to be, you can read about it in the encyclopedia that I'm looking at right now, John Fulce's book. So much of that is people, what did we have left over? A gumbo, that's what it is. Yeah. You know, what did we have left over that we can make something out of these leftover meals from all week you know we had some chicken leftover maybe we had some shrimp leftover there's there's rice and everything um and so you, you're what you just said about barbecue being kind of the 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 blue collar really the you know the the people had to make do with what they had. that's how louisiana you know that's how louisiana cooking was mm-hmm. i mean it's like what do we have and what can we make with it that tastes really really good yeah yeah
1: yeah I, I would I would agree with you I mean uh, but you know as you as you kind of unpack that idea, um, there's certainly a lot of um, cultures around the world that you know um, they they had a climate that grew rice really well right and so what is their what is their crop you know what is a staple component of a lot of their meals just like you and I and so we share I say this all the time about food is like we share way more food than we like to believe Mm -hmm. just because you use fish sauce and i use Wisheshire in certain sauces we're still eating things with rice every day and we share and that and and that's the that's the um the cornerstone of our cuisine in a lot of ways is is rice right like how much, and and you can say that about so many other cultures. And if we if we stop, and that and again, I go back to food and the connection with people and how that brings people together. It's not just because we can sit at a table and eat, Mm-mm. because when you really break it down, we have a lot more in common than we have not in common. Yeah,
0: man. Yeah, I've I've said that so many times. If we really just stop with the, you know, this guy's a Democrat, this guy's a Republican, this guy's this, but this guy's that. If we just stop and put all that crap aside, mm. I think we'll find out that we have a lot more that connects us than separates us. Yeah. And there's nothing I have found, for me anyway, uh, because I do love to cook. I, I was brought up so just uh, just south of Alexandria, Louisiana, Um, You talked about Opelousas. Well, mine was Bunky. Mm. All right. So you know where Bunky is. Um, I was brought up grabbing the chair and stirring the roof for my grandmother and learning how to make the, the brown stocks and the gravies and the gumbos and the jambalayas. And I have now to a point where good food just makes me so happy. And what makes me even happier is making other people happy with food that I cook. Oh yeah. Like I don't even have to sit down and eat it. But when people take a bite and they're like, "Oh my gosh, it's so good." Like nothing warms my heart more than seeing people happy eating something that I prepared for them.
1: Yeah, I call that the gift I love to give myself. Yeah, man. You know, that's a right cooking on. for others is 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 a gift you give yourself just to see them enjoy, yeah. it. you know, to look out into a room and hear quietness, but see smiles, and you yeah. see like that motion and eating, and um, that's a gift you give to yourself, and it's yeah, it's man. a selfish gift, but it's one that people.
0: But it's not though. It, but, it, it is no, it
1: it's not, but it is. You're right? doing it's it. Like... I'm
0: doing it for kind of a
1: selfish reason, but everybody
0: is just digging it. Like I my hear favorite, you. no, it's my favorite thing. I, I think it's page four forty-two in that book is the white chocolate bread pudding dude Hmm. when i make that after i put a big pot of uh duck and andouille sausage gumbo and they eat that and then i hit them with that white chocolate bread pudding dude it's over lights out lights out it's done (laughs) i had a buddy tell me we were in duck camp and i made um i think i did make a a big gumbo and i'm going to talk to you about that in a second but um So, I mean, they were elbows deep. I didn't even have to clean the pot, dude. I mean, they were like bread sopping up the, you know, in the pot. And that just makes me so happy. But then I hit them with that white chocolate bread pudding with the bread pudding sauce on top and some raspberries on the side for some color and some blueberries. And and one of the dudes said, man, that and a glass of milk is like Ambien. Yeah. That would just knock you out and put you straight to sleep lucky if
1: they wake up for the hunt the next day huh
0: some of them didn't dude (laughs) i don't think it was a bread pudding though i think it was something else but um so i think let's talk about um one of the things i want to talk about is prepping waterfowl to cook Mm. um is that something that you that you have done a lot in the past um
1: or yeah i mean that's so Cleaning ducks is how I learned how to clean chickens. Mm. Um, because, you know, way before I ever went to culinary school, I was 8, 9, 10 to about 15 years old hunting with my dad. and We always cleaned ducks on the bow of the boat at the launch before going in. And that was, that was how we did it. So I had learned plucking. how to... Plucking? Yep, plucking, oh, yeah. breasting, even whole big ducks. Or sometimes we just breast them out if we had a lot of pool do or something like that. But, right. um and I had just I had learned that through just being at the launch with my old man and his friends, sitting down, sitting around, and cleaning ducks. Um, wh- you know, one of the most memorable uh, times I had cleaning and eating ducks. I was with my one of my best friends, Jay Snyder. We actually share a birthday in May first coming up. Happy birthday, Jay! Mm.
0: Um, I'm ten days behind you. Oh
1: wow! Well, maybe another, maybe another tourist. That's yeah, awesome. That's right.
0: <laughs>
1: um we had we had we had, had an okay hunt. We had shot some ringnecks and some teal and so on and but we need to go back into the launch but I said we had some time to kill. Um and so we just pulled over into one of the little bayous off the intercoastal canal uh, and we kind of ducked off into this little calm area. He had a little propane burner with a cast iron skillet. And I didn't even have any seasoning, man. Mm. I had some boudin, mm-hmm. some bacon, and I had some duck. And um, you know, that duck had never hit ice, it was still warm. That's all you duck. need, man. And uh <laughs> we had fried I'd crisped up some of that bacon to get some grease. I'd put that boudin in it till it kind of rendered out some of his juices. Yeah. And I just cranked it up and I just seared uh those duck breasts on one side till it got nice and caramelized, where it's still rosy up top. Turned that fire off, just flipped them give them a little give a little that heat and just took them right off. And they were like perfect medium, rare medium. And I, I don't think I had ever had a better duck breast in my life. And to put it that simple and like to cook it that simply. Yeah. Just with like rendered bacon fat and using like it, it got a little bit of enough salt from the bacon fat and boudin to bring out the duck flavor. but it was some of the best duck I've oh. had. And it was right in the cast iron skillet. Um, riding this little bayou off the intercoastal canal. No bells. So my point to all that is that the duck gumbos are great and certainly have their place. There's also a certain beauty to not even hitting the ice an hour or two old right after the hunt. And you may not have enough for a gumbo, but you got enough for a snack. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that's all you need. Uh, yeah. And that was a really – it was actually a really special time, just he and I. Shooting the breeze. I don't get to see him that often. I hunt with him three times, four times a year. This was the first hunt. It's actually teal season, so it may have been all teal. Hmm. Um so hopefully it was all teal for yeah. teal season. Right. Um, and uh it, you know, it was good to just we'll catch that up catch, yeah. <laughs> it was just good to catch up with a with the old friend and uh and cook those ducks and and, ha- and just have that moment right there right on the water.
0: Yeah, I think one of, so you touched on it, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the biggest mistakes that I see guys make. So, and you know, I, I mentioned the the camp up in, in Mississippi, the common thing was, and they do this of all things with wood ducks, which to rip the breast out of a wood duck is, it should be a cardinal sin. Um, but I, you know, most of the guys will just rip the breast out, wrap them and bake them cook them like that and eat them. And you're... My point to those guys is, whoa, slow down, um, take your time, pluck them. I, I mean, because you loot when you when you rip the breast out of them, you lose all of that good that good uh, yellow corn fat or that mm-hmm. acorn fat that that just makes them taste so good. And the way I put a lot of love into a gumbo, so I'll pluck mine um, and I'll brine them usually for a couple of days. Get the you know get get the blood out of them. Um, a lot of guys that hunt deer will know what I'm talking about. You leave them in the ice chest and just keep that ice slush and change When the water gets pink, change it, put some more and just keep doing that until they have bled out. The meat's going to be kind of a gray color. Um, but I will season those birds and I will smoke them. Right. Mm. And then I take them out, let them cool, pull all the all The meat out, you got to look for the shot. Mine, you know, I shoot mine in the head, so there's no like <laughs> right, yeah, right. You guys have watched my videos, you know, I don't shoot them all in the head. Um, but With then a 22, yeah, exactly. <laughs> One BB, um, but then I'll take those carcasses, right, and I'll season them, I'll roast them, and get them, I mean, get them really good and charred, roasting in the oven and then I'll start making my stock and put the onions and celery and carrots and things like that and and boil those carcasses and make a really dark stock and then, so then comes the next day right you I'll I'll make a roux that turns almost as as black as this microphone mm-hmm. just a really really dark, and it's if it's cold outside it's even better um but I I mean I use every single ounce of that bird that god blessed me with on that hunt Mm -hmm. um and a lot of guys you know they said man you take all that time to pluck them that's just too much work until they taste the gumbo yeah and then all is good in life and i tell you mine is such a dark and rich gumbo with with smoked ducks that smoky flavor comes through because the, the 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 stock that i make with the bones and everything um but that when i when i Put my, you know, the Trinity onion, celery, bell pepper into the roux and let that cook. Some Steen's cane syrup to mm-hmm. give it a little bit of sweet.
1: Whew. Game changer. Oh man. Oh well, yeah, you hit on you hit on a lot of the five the five flavors that we taste in our, in our palate, and that Steen's is the reason why that's the connected dot because you need to introduce sweet. So you get it from onions and and garlic, and you can get sweetness from that, but. You know, salty, sweet, bitter, umami and sour. You can mm-hmm. get all those like different things from what you just described. One yeah. of the things I think that you you touched on, but we should all just think about a little deeper when cooking wild game, is that it is wild. And it does yeah. and it will lend so like we I cook duck pretty regularly. Not always wild duck. A lot of domestic farm raised duck, you know, from the Hudson Valley and different areas. Big difference. And, Big difference. So when you're roasting bones uh, on wild duck and you have all that that marrow that's in, in in, you know, small little bones, but there's marrow in there that you're releasing through the roasting process and the simmering process of a stock, that's going to be completely different than if you're used to cooking domestic duck for sure. But as that plays into, that's a completely different flavor. Yes, because it's wild, but once you start introducing... Brine, smoke, roast to those wild marrows and wild bones. That's gonna change. Doesn't matter what gumbo you had before, that's gonna make it different, right? Because you are, you are building. And that's what all great chefs do. They layer flavor, right? They, they use brine for tenderness and salt. And so was a great chef and didn't even know it. Yep, there you go. But like you, I mean, look, that's, that's what Louisiana's have been good for for centuries. Is layering flavors. Mm-hmm. I do. I do a little trick with my roux. Well, when I put my trinity, I always put my onions and garlic first, mm-hmm. and I wait to put bell pepper and celery because I want to caramelize onion and garlic first, where that has a that doesn't have a lot of water mm-hmm. in those vegetables, where celery and bell pepper do. Because once you put that in, you're Everything stops, right? You can soften, but you can't caramelize. That's right. And so, if you can put onions and garlic in your roux first and give that its turn there first, develop sweetness and develop earthiness and abundance through that through uh, that onion and uh, onion and garlic. That's gonna also. That's part of the layering process of of building any any dish. Yeah, and
0: you know what happens when you start throwing the Trinity into a hot roux. The smells that come out that draws people like a magnet. Yeah, like they'll cut. What is Goche cooking?
1: I don't know, man. I can't. I one of the things for me is bacon fat, onions, and thyme. That is. Uh, uh. Th- those are those are like when I smell those flavors, I I'm, I'm salivating right now thinking about it. Uh, but like when I when those happen and when I hear thyme, fresh thyme pop and fat that mm-hmm. that's when i know something good's happened you know when you can yeah. hear it when you hear that time popping in butter or bacon fat uh man it's good it's good stuff is you know is, i go ahead i i um two seasons ago they had this canvas bat. i was hunting down Louisiana with my friends his canvas bat flying solo as a solo canvas bat, but with another group of ducks of like four or five it was and uh I didn't know. I'm not that good of a shotter that, you know, it was, as much as I love to hunt, I don't get to hunt as much as the average duck hunter. Uh, and so, but so I'm just, you know, I, I'm not all about picking birds. I'm like, I see a bird. I'm going to go right, right there. Right. I just happened to pick the canvas back and I knocked him down. Oh, it was a beautiful canvas back. And um, we plucked him. We cleaned him. I kept his neck. I kept his feet. I made all my different stocks with him. One of my favorite dishes I've been doing with wild game is duck a l'orange, oh, um, yeah. and I'm you know using the classic French techniques of you know wild game and orange. One one there's a um, there's a um, I don't know if anybody you might have heard of Alice Waters. You ever hear that name? Mm-mm. She started a restaurant called Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California. She's uh, continually known as like the the um, um, the, f- I wouldn't say father, she's a woman, but the founder of kind of sustainable farm to table cooking. And she has a very, um, a very popular motto that I've gone by for years and a lot of chefs go by. If it grows together, it goes together. And, ah. and what are the things that are in season in the wintertime with ducks? And that's citrus. Mm. And the French knew it. Three hundred years ago, with a scoffier, right. uh, before before Che Penisse. But when I think of uh, citrus and duck, they go together so well. And uh, I pot roasted that canvas back with satsumas and local navel oranges and bay leaves, and just using that stock to just wet the bottom, and a deep Dutch oven, Le Creuset pot, lid on, and just you know all those all that citrus is reducing in that pot with a little bit of duck stock and getting all caramelized and Mm. and lacquerish and i'm just taking a spoon i'm just layering that's that right over the the canvas back and putting the lid back on nice and slow until it really just kind of pulls away from that bone and um and that was one of the best that was that was probably the one of the best like prepared intensive duck dishes i've done uh in a while one because it was we don't get it with a lot of canvasbacks in the freshwater marshes of Louisiana. So I've never sh- killed one. Wow, that's it's my a-
0: that's 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 a bucket list bird. Anybody that is listening to the podcast that wants to get a guy on his bucket list bird, it's me, canvasback. yeah it was
1: <laughs> it was beautiful. And we were plucking all kind of ringnecks, and you know that you know how it's like plucking ringnecks. And this uh. canvasback just had a. Had an undercoat of, of 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 feathers that was like down, right? Yeah. Like that, like what you would know of down, just completely different from the rest of the bird. And you can tell it was the, um, and they called the king or queen of ducks, or like king, the king of yeah. And, Delta and it, Waterfowl
0: used it for their logo for that reason.
1: Yeah, and it and it and it felt like that when you're plugging. You're like, wow, this was it was really special. Like just cleaning that bird and cooking it, and I cook. It was my mom, my sister, and my dad, and I get to cook with for them like twice a year. And that was the duck I got to deal with, and it was, and it, and it fed us. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a big, full, you know, um, full size canvas bat. and it yeah. was a pretty bird.
0: I think a lot of guys, um, a lot of people don't realize how well fruit and wild game go together. Mm-hmm. Um, be it mayhaws, or be it, you know, be it blackberries, or oranges, or apples, or, or things that, and I think that overcooking is the
1: biggest mistake you can make with any wild game. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is the classic um the classic conversation with wild game. It's it's almost and I hate it's kinda like octopus in this way. You it's even cooked for five minutes, like really quick and seared and like perfectly mid rare, or you have to cook it till it literally falls apart and off the bone. Anything in the middle is just mm. tough and not good. I'm okay with overcooking. In terms of like not being medium or mid rare, but you got to take it past the point of well done to the point of like pot roasting mm-hmm. and kind of falling apart and being tender, and that's what all meat goes through those stages. Some take longer than others, depending on what the makeup of the animal is. But at some point, it's going to be well done, and then you're going to get to the point of tenderizing again through the through the process of breaking down proteins.
0: Right, 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 and to me top of the list for me waterfowl as far as eating wood duck number one teal number two right behind it and then you start getting into your mallards and gray ducks and things like that but man i I see guys ripping the breasts out of wood ducks and teal i'm like oh
1: my gosh please stop man that's a bad i mean wood ducks like yeah, I don't know why you would do that with wood ducks because oh, I've had I have stop. a lot I have a lot of fond memories of shooting wood ducks in little wood ducks holes and back of like small little canals and back of sugarcane Like Oh man, it's awesome! Like, um, yeah. it just when I was a little boy doing that, you know, and uh, we never we never breasted a wood duck. We always ate them because you're right that that orange fat that in between that skin and the and the breast meat. Uh, by, yeah, the, by the yep. neck. Oh yep.
0: man. It's just so, one of the best ones, one of the best hunts we had, um, was one of the first episodes we ever, uh, we ever filmed for Passion of Pursuit and it was in flooded timber in Mississippi Delta. Um, relax guys. I'm not going to give away any spots. Um, mm-hmm. but we had walked in, I'm big on scouting. So I want to know, not like the general area where they're going to land the next morning. Like I want the tree. I want to know the tree that I'm going to be standing by. And that's just one of those things that I'm super, super picky about. It drives some guys crazy, but, oh, I mean, I kill a lot of ducks. So, okay, um, there's the lesson. But we, we walked in, and we were scouting the spot. Me and Lee Green, one of our field pastors, scouting the spot. And we could hear them. We walked a little ridge, and then the we started getting to water, and we could hear them. We couldn't really see them and it's like i said i want to know exactly where they are and so i I kind of saw some moving in the trees maybe 100 yards up i said so i just stay i'm going to slip around and i'm going to i'm going to get to that next oak tree and see if i can like use my gps to to set a point you know 100 yards up that is that's exactly where they're going to be and i took one step up in the woods exploded Hmm. I, i mean if there wasn't if there wasn't 500 mallards in this one timber hole that we hunted, th- there wasn't a single one. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. So we got in there the next morning and our field pastor from North Carolina came in with his buddy. One of my buddies here from uh, from Covington went with me. Um, Lee Green from Baton Rouge was with us and we got in there. And I didn't know that, you know, we're used to past shooting wood ducks at first light. Um, but we were standing where the wood ducks wanted to be. I mean, and they came from every direction at daylight. I mean, it was, it was like shoe mosquitoes. And mm-hmm. so to the guys that hadn't scouted that spot, I'm like, look, we can shoot, we can shoot six ducks total. So go easy on the, if you want Mowards, go easy on the wood ducks, only shoot two. Well, that was for, I mean, for there, there was no way, I mean, they were landing on your head. You just, you can't lay off of them when they're like that. And so we had, uh, we had five guys. So we had our 30 bird limit, you know, by, because I said, okay, we have enough wood we can't shoot any more wood ducks. We had our three each. Um, and this was 20 minutes after, after shooting time. And Golly. so I said, okay, cause it's seven 30 at seven 730, 35. I, so it, you know, it's 7. Now at 8.35, the mallards are going to come. And I mean, like clockwork here, they came and dude, it was just, oh man, it was ridiculous. But we had 30 birds by, I don't know, maybe quarter to nine that morning. Um, and it was just, but, but the wood ducks, I I just, I love, as much as I love shooting them, Mm. I love plucking them smoking them and using them in in some type of of gumbo or just just roasting them like you said with like orange or fruit or something yeah now did you did you
1: go back to that hole or did you hunt that hole regularly throughout the season or did you kind of yeah we've we've
0: hunted it a bunch before that but we had never had like i think we just caught the water had just come up and flooded a white oak acorn uh Mm -hmm. patch A white oak It, it just had a good mass that year Um, and we try to not hunt the same hole twice, like back to back, you know, days. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this, this place, it's a, it's a refuge. So you, there's no hunting on Thursday, Mm -hmm. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you can hunt one part of it, the part that we were in. So we scouted on a Thursday with that hunt. I just told you about was on a Friday. Well, Saturday is when everybody's off work and Mm -hmm. it's a relatively easy walk in. It's probably, you know about a half a mile on dry ground. So it's super easy, but you could also get to it pretty easily from a boat. And so I said, okay, Saturday, Sunday, everybody's going to be here. So then we walked uh, the, the spot that that we film in is a 1.7 mile walk in and a 1.7 mile walk out. And we beat the brakes off of them Saturday and Sunday too, but in a different spot, much further down. Right. But or I knew deep. the layout of that, That you know, I know yeah. kind of like the river's at this stage, this is going to have new water on it, and that's where we need to be. It's just from hunting there so much that you kind of figure out the pattern.
1: Well, that's nice. That's
0: yeah. Nice. Yeah. What do you, um, how much of Louisiana or Cajun Creole type cooking do you try to bring back into Blue Smoke now where you are?
1: Yeah, um, I do it. I wouldn't say it's like has a full time place on the menu. Um, you know, I'll, I'll make Boudin once a month and special it out, or I'll do, um, I'll make jambalaya, um, when the, when the weather's right and gumbo. Mm -hmm. Gumbo stays on the menu pretty for like six months out of the year Mm -hmm. because it's just people, one, it's people, people know it. It's gumbo, jambalaya um shrimp and grits, which it really isn't a Louisiana thing. Right. Um but that's they, they they associate Southern food and Cajun food with only a select few things. They have no idea what Cubillons or fricassee's or Saucepans or yeah, or yeah. you know, Boudin really. You know, I have to really talk about boudin like what's you know, it's a rice sausage. Mm, really? Yeah. Rice sausage? Mm, da, da, da. <laughs> until they eat it. Until they eat it. But now (laughs) Boudin is kind of having a moment in the culinary world. Um, you're actually seeing a lot of folks in Texas, you know, you always saw it in Beaumont and Houston because it's proximity to Louisiana, but all the way, all the way to San Antonio putting Boudin on the, on the menu. So to that, like, I, things come in and out. Uh, there's always thumbprints of Cajun food on the menu. Uh, and that could be cornbread Madelines, which Mm. is, which Steen's cane syrup. Cornbread is um, a, a food of all of the South. Uh, Madeline's are a French cookie. Uh, and Steen's cane syrup um, is, is made in Abbeville, Louisiana. Uh, so those things combined, that's that's actually a perfect example of you fusion, if you will, or using a palette of like ideas and flavors that I love and putting together. The truth is, is that I grew up eating cornbread, leftover cornbread, heated up in the microwave with Steen's cane syrup drizzled over it. Yeah. For breakfast. That
0: was breakfast. That's right, man.
1: (laughs) So I knew that I knew from growing up that like those flavors hit.
0: Yeah. And I'd drink Papa's coffee and chicory with them too. That's right.
1: That's right. And uh, so when I put that on the menu, it was like, I know these flavors are good. If we execute correctly, it's going to be a game changer. And it is. It's one of the. It's one of the most sought after recipes that people want when they come eat. It's a must have whenever you come to Blue Smoke. And that's what I mean by the thumbprint. There's always a conversation about um, how my Louisiana roots um, play into the different foods of, of Blue Smoke. But I can't say there's not, there's one like dish that is just your tried and true Cajun mm-hmm. food that's already always on there. The gumbos come into play, the boudins, the jambalayas always come to play every year. Um, But I used to do... I had, you know, not a lot of people got it, and I kind of figured that, but I kind of weren't passionately. I wanted to do my... I do this, and a year ago, I had um, a menu that we ran for like three months, an additional menu to what uh, uh, Blue Smoke was already serving, and what did I call it? Anyways, it was... It was all, uh, kind of recreating my childhood Cajun dishes. Um, and I can't get red. I couldn't get redfish, but I could get other. I, I used alligator. I used alligator for a, sauce a sauce.
0: sauce, I use
1: alligator for a sauce pecan, but I fried it and I did different little things with it. I had a, uh, what I called a boucherie board where Mm -hmm. I did, um, brisket beef jerky and boudin and hogshead cheese with cracklins like on instead of like a charcuterie board and just different things. Um, I had a Guinea hen stew, um, with biscuits, used you know, biscuits, baked yeah. in like, a like a, um, um, like a pot, um, what do you call it? Pot pie type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, I was really proud of, uh, uh, Cajun recipes. That's what I call it. Cajun recipes, uh, menu. And it was just really like three months of having this menu that was devoted to uh, my upbringing and really my, and uh, looking at it through a chef's lens and kind of playing with those things. And uh, Did but people sometime, trip out when they ate it? Did people trip it? when people, yeah, but you know, people loved it. People wanted the recipes. People were really intrigued by some of those dishes because there were, there were things like fricassee and sauce pecans and kubiyas that nobody ever heard. that were past the gumbo, past the. Boucherie, what's a boucherie? Well, it means butcher, but here's what, here's what it kind of, here's the three little things that you might find in a boucherie. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, admittedly, and I knew this the whole, whole, whole time. If people are coming in for ribs, it's hard to sell them on a gumbo or Mm -hmm. a couillon, right? Mm -hmm. When you got the hankering for ribs, I'm one of those guys at least once a month. You know, I want ribs, and there's little that's anybody's going to stop me from ordering those ribs. And so, like those, that's a, those are always challenges the the, the challenges of a restaurant in any genre. Yeah, of food you don't go to Ruth's restaurant. Chris
0: and eat a salad. Yeah, I mean, I yeah.
1: you know, if it comes with the steak, maybe. Yeah, you know. that's fine. But you know, <laughs> why you're pulling in the parking lot, exactly. So, I mean, those things are fun. But you know, one of the one of the biggest joys I have. Um, New York's has given me New York has given me a wonderful platform to speak about food. Mm. Um, so it's given me a wonderful platform to raise other people up um, both from Louisiana and outside Louisiana where that's artisans that are making small batch cane syrups or vinegars or Damn. bitters for their cocktail program, promoting them, using them at the restaurant. They're being a part of the conversation to our staff who's in having the conversation with our guests. Who may never go to Louisiana or never experience these different products, and that can be different cornmeal, rice, rice grits, different you know all of these different things. Um, that now we have a platform to talk about them for and with, yeah. and so that's been really special for me because you know um, I've done a lot. I'm tur- I turned thirty five in May first, and I've done a lot in my short career as a chef, uh, and um, you know. My name's on the menu, my name's on the website, and that's, I'm very humbled by that. Uh, but I use a lot of great products that nobody knows about and right. a lot of great ingredients that you can't get here in New York that never make it out of the Southeast even. So um, it's been wonderful to put those people on a pedestal above me and above the food and above the restaurant and above all that things and really had them part of the conversation.
0: That's just, that's, that, that's, that's life, man. Making people happy and holding other people in higher regard than you do yourself, it's all going to come back.
1: Yeah, um, look, I mean, again, God, I, I, I've been blessed over and over again in this life. I feel fortunate. I, I guess like I told you in the beginning of the show, I feel fortunate to be sitting here in this chair talking to you. Yeah. Um, having the ability to talk about my career at this point in and it itself is just like winning a James Beard award for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I, I'm compelled to um, have the conversation about others. And if, but if, you know, if cooking better food and getting more awards and getting more recognition, if that's the price I have to pay to bell, to raise others up and to have that opportunity, um, to have a conversation about the Southern Foodways Alliance in Oxford, Mississippi, Mm. or, um, Anson Mills grits or Geechee boy cornmeal or Holy city hogs out of South, out of Charleston, South Carolina, or any of the number of amount of people that I get to work with to have the conversation and make them part of Southern food and part of our culture. And I'll take that every time, you know? And, uh, again, I've been so fortunate that people raised me up as a young chef and a young culinarian. Um, it's done great things for my career. Being in New York, having the shot of working at Blue Smoke. I wasn't fixing to leave New York. I stayed. I met really? my wife. Right? Yeah. So um, these are all things that I just count my blessings every day on. And I just really reflect on them more than anything and think about how I can give back and how I can, raise people up uh so i don't know it's just been a, i am I, now getting to that point in my career where i'm saying to myself wow like i'm i'm bound to take a step back and say wow all these great things have come to me yes i've worked hard for them but do i deserve them i i don't know if i deserve them but i know other people deserve them yeah and so how can i how can i get them back in the spotlight too so uh you know that's it's all part of um Growing and that's kind of where I'm at right now in my career. So what what is
0: what's next? What what where do you um what do you see coming up next? Or where what kind of your your goals are? Um, is it to eventually make your way back home? Is it or is it? I don't know. Monday I just might feel like selling all my stuff and moving. Again. Of course, you got a wife now, so you can't do
1: that. Um, yeah, she'd be down for it. Um, no, that's good. Yeah. Um, what,
0: where did, what what kind of what do you want to do that you haven't done yet? Let me ask you that.
1: You know, if I wasn't a chef, I would. Um, I always said I want to be a part of uh, coastal restoration, Louisiana. Oh man, um, big time! And, man, that's and it, it's such a. And those who are from Louisiana know know this issue all too well. And for those who aren't from Louisiana. Um, coastal erosion through saltwater intrusion, shipping canals, hurricanes, um, rising water levels, um, so on and so forth are, uh, exterminating Louisiana's coastline at a rapid pace. Um, I just read that there's been some, um, um, there's been some, um, uh, what do you call it? Laws and such passed as of recently to help aid into coastal restoration of Louisiana, uh, different uh, through Senate, Louisiana Senate and Congress and so on. Um, and so I'm hoping that takes um, that those wheels get turning and we see some things come to fruition in the next few years. But I don't know if we're ever going to turn around decades and centuries of erosion. But uh, if we can slow it, that would be great. As far, you know, those are things that are really passionate to me, and I have no idea how I can be a part of that conversation. Uh, Again, just by talking about it out loud to people who may not know about the issue, to shine a light. I often say sunlight is the best disinfectant. Mm. Uh, And so if you can shine a light on issues and problems, there's hope that maybe there's people that are smarter than me that can aid in helping those things. Um, In terms of food and cooking, um, more than ever I am feeling called to um, just cook with my heart uh, and for my heart and for other people's heart and um, to really be a part my culinary voy- voyage uh, does not end in sunset on being the, on being the chef at Blue Smoke um, mm-hmm. people like Jose Andreas um people like um operation barbecue relief and for those who've not heard about operation barbecue relief um you should go out and look them up they are doing great things for um who is they are a group of um guys stationed out of kansas city who go around the united states um whether it be california or florida or my hometown or our hometown louisiana during natural disasters and feed communities with barbecue, feed first responders with barbecue. Uh, CNN last year put them up for a CNN Heroes Award, which is um, they are just unbel- um Stan Hayes is one of the founders. Um, they're just a wonderful group of men who go out and cook their hearts out for people with broken hearts. Mm-hmm. and that have to do with natural disasters They're in california for the wildfires they're in the floods um you know in amy river and mm-hmm. baton rouge flooded mm-hmm. and so on katrina rita so on and so forth they've been yeah, around i've got for- it
0: pulled up right now operation barbecue relief provides meals to displaced residents and emergency personnel during times of natural and other disasters yeah.
1: That's and awesome. so they're, they're they're a good um they're they're, they're good inspiration and good and good people to kind of model what I, I hope to be in the impactful as they are uh, to communities and to culture as, as they have been, you know, I can, if I can be as 5% as impactful as they have, I'd consider myself a lucky man. And operation, so operation,
0: operation, bbq relief.org. That's right. That's, that's right.
1: And so I, I try to, I try to make it out with them as much as I can. If, if you know, it's, during natural disasters it's hard to fly into certain areas but you know that's that you you make the sacrifice and you go you know you lend your hand you can lend your financial services and so on to to that uh and there and there's there's groups like that that I really look up to and you know at, uh, hopefully I can make an impact like that one day and it's just um right like I said to you in this podcast it's food is my way of life it's how I make a living it's how I Afford to go duck hunting, you know? Um,
0: yeah, how much but, do you get to do that? Now?
1: <laughs> I try to. I try to go uh, three or four times a year. I try to make a goose hunt, um, you know, once a year as, as such. I was in Lubbock this past year. Um, I've grown. I've grown to gotten to be friends somewhat with the Mossy Oak folks down in Mississippi. So I'm actually doing some uh, some events with them this year, and hopefully can make some hunts of kill my first deer with them in Mississippi. Mm. So I I try to, you know, I just try to be outdoors and no matter where I'm at, if I'm doing different events, it doesn't matter if I'm fishing or hunting or just walking the woods kind of in solitude. I I really, I really cherish those moments, uh, especially when you're in, and I love New York, but you're, you're surrounded by people constantly. And so to having that freedom of space is really special to me. So I try to do that. Doesn't matter if I kill ducks. Um, doesn't no matter if I catch fish. Those are just the, the, the spoils of being yeah. out there, uh, but being out there is the real prize. Um, but as far as my next moves, I just want to keep giving back to my community. I just want to keep cooking my heart out for people with broken hearts and um, try to do that as much as I can and really trying to find ways to be impactful in that.
0: Well, I, I'm going to put all of your website and contact stuff in the show notes, so um listeners can check it out i was in queens when you were out of town mm-hmm. and uh i didn't see a whole lot of tail and redfish and i didn't see a lot of teal <laughs> and i looked
1: no there's some canada goose uh canada Ooh, you don't want to eat them man yeah they they kind of hang out on the on the east river if you want to <laughs> yeah it's
0: funny man because I, I i did see some of those almost wrecked i was on i slip i was on the 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 lie going out to some agencies that i was working with and uh there were some canada geese that flew across the highway and almost wrecked so yeah
1: you know i just learned the other day that they're not called canadian geese they're nope canadians canada. are people yeah. canadas are geese, canada geese. Yeah. <laughs> i said I, that i, I said I, that on yeah. my last podcast yeah.
0: Yeah. um we had uh some guys come in from california and hunt with us and they were um they're actually Pakistani, um, you know, Christians from, from Pakistan. They hit me up, um, uh, Josh and Jerry Massey. And they said, man, we'd, we'd love to hunt with you. We love your message. Like what, what do we have to do to get to hunt with you? I'm like, I don't know. Do you get on a plane? I mean, there's, there's nothing you know special about me. I said, well, what do you want to hunt? And I'm thinking they're going to say, man, we want to hunt flooded timber. Cause that's what, you know, so everybody, they said, we want to shoot Canada. geese. Then we want to shoot Canadian geese. I said okay, so they flew in Medicine, Kansas, and we were hunting with our buddies, um, Ronnie Condo and his crew, just south of Wichita, which is they're always covered with with geese. Mm. They kept saying Canadian geese, Canadian geese, and Ronnie said, okay, so just so you know, um, Canadians are people, Canada's are geese, and I, <laughs> dude, I almost fell out of <laughs> out of the tangle-free blind we were hunting in because it was just so funny. Like, yeah, it's Canada geese.
1: I love hunting them, no man. I look. I sit out on oh, my yeah. front porch some mornings. Uh, now that it's warmed up a little bit, I can do this a little more freely. But just every morning, they you can hear them honking away, going you know in and out of that river, mm. and even that just kind of makes me feel at yeah. home. You know, yeah. just listening to them travel, and even you know sometimes sometimes they fly right over the trees. Mm. Sometimes they're they're flying in formation. You know, do you ever do this when they up. fly over? <laughs> You can ask my wife. I do that like when she's driving and I'm riding on the side of the road and I see him just kind of piled up on the side of the road. I'm like
0: <laughs> Yeah. Aim the fake gun at him. That's so funny. I love I it. I think we all do that. <laughs> it's so like when our, do you, it's like our air guitar. Yeah, that exactly. You get A C D C on to you can't help but play air guitar with Angus, right? When do you uh when do you get to come back to Louisiana? Anytime
1: soon? <clears throat> funny enough. I think I'm going to be back at the end of May to do a little, um, a small promotional video with, um, with my culinary, the John Falls Culinary Institute mm-hmm. and, um, some, uh, fundraising, some fundraising and, uh, and donors that have contributed to, uh, building out that culinary school a little bit. So I think I actually have, I haven't, flights aren't booked yet, but penciled in the end of May. I'll Likely be down in May uh Louisiana for a few days to do that. After that, it'll likely be till season, and then a couple times, a um, couple times for duck season. Hopefully, I can make it down. And then, you know, anytime. I, to be honest with you, like I have no problem with flying out on a Friday night, being at a duck camp Friday evening, and hunting Saturday, Sunday, and coming back Monday. Like I'll, I might like, take duck season. I'm like take my money. Here's my <laughs> take my money bye let's get the t- <laughs> So
0: well I tell you what else man um so when you come in in May the redfish ought to be about right it's been really windy water's been high um but I usually keep my thumb on them so if you want to uh you want to hit me up when you come in during May we can make that happen yeah and then any of the times that we you know we're going into Kansas and hunting Canada geese or ducks or whatever. Dude, I can pick you up at the an airport and bring
1: you back. Yeah. Well, look, I again, uh, if that's an invitation, count me in. Yeah, uh, it is. I I will buy, you know, we'll, we'll set it up, but yeah, definitely if I'm if that happens, which I think it will in May, we'll see what time what kind of time I have, but uh Yeah. Um I'd love if to If you do, man, you. I,
0: I'd love to I'd love to hook up with you yeah, I'd love and to go with and just man the fellowship and everything else. And, and, you know, I, I think, I think, uh, our viewers and our listeners will be seeing and hearing a lot more from you because the, the whole, the cooking side of our ministry is like when we first talked, uh, is something that I would really, really like to, to be yeah. a little bit more deliberate and intentional about. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, every, everybody's got to eat so you know all <laughs> vectors cross at
1: the stomach for guys yeah so. yeah yep. uh i'm i'm again thanks for thanks for having me on it's yeah, uh I, I got I, I i got connected with your message and what you're kind of what you were talking about through the outdoors through instagram and if it mm-hmm. wasn't for that i don't know if we'd ever met and uh just to share with you um last time i was hunting in lubbock and uh, you know they ain't much to love it for those who've been nope. there, right? It's a <laughs> <Been> Milo, <laughs> but y- got- you know what's in Lubbock actually? Nothing. Sandhill, sandhill cranes. Sandhill uh- <laughs> cranes, and nothing else. And that's what we were hunting, and man, it was freezing. Boy, it was cold, and I had right socks on. My feet were freezing. We were laying on that ground, but I was so pumped to be hunting sandhill cranes. <laughs> but really, what took me over was um, when that sun rose and that. Sun hit that golden milo and the frost was on the, I can, I'm picturing right now Mm. that frost just took over the milo and you can hear those geese and the sandhill cranes afar and the anticipation and the fellowship with six guys to your, to your right and six guys to your left. and just a string of 15 hunters like lined up for, for massacres. But, uh, but just to feel the presence, um, of God and his creations come to life was just and it, 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 it filled this spot in my heart that, um, that I, I didn't know I need filling. And right. every time I go out, like it, it gets filled, but something about that trip, it was before I even, um, uh, knew about you or I had followed you on Instagram mm-hmm. and we kind of talked, but before and I was like, man, there's gotta be something to this, yeah. um, and this feeling that you know we're we're amongst God's creations, and yeah. we're here together for that creation. And there's got to be those dots to connect through food, through the outdoors, through Christ, and through that fellowship.
0: Yeah, I, I think that um, you know it says that we are created in His image, right? I mean, um, it, it says, "Let us create man in our image," and God's heart, I think longs for and loves the 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 wild outdoor beauty of creation i mean he created it all and said it was good yeah so if we are created in his image with his heart and love the things that he loves why would it why would we it it shouldn't hit us any other way than just we are create we are reconnecting with we're leaving all the garbage behind right all the labels and titles of salesperson or chef or mom or dad or brothers, all these things that pull us away from him, when we immerse ourselves back into his creation, we connect with number one, I think what my buddy Heath Whitmore in Arkansas has said, and that is hunting in the outdoors gets us as close as we can possibly get to what the world was like before the fall of man. Mm -hmm. Um, the animals are the same that they, they do the same things that they've been doing for thousands of years. Um, and it is as close as, as we can get to reconnecting with that wild masculine heart that we were created with, we were create, he created those things for us to enjoy. And that is, I think that's what you feel. And that's what I feel. And I think that's what a lot of guys who maybe aren't even believers, who don't have that relationship with him like you and I do, they feel that. And I don't think they really know what that is. Like you just said, I don't know what that is, but being out here in, in the wall where it's just, it's just Joey and it's just Jean Paul and it's not chef. It's not this guy. It, it's it. That's where we were created to be by a creator that loved those places. Um, you know, in Exodus, it says, "Our God is a, is is a, a a man of war." I mean, does that sound like somebody who doesn't enjoy adventure? And and no, not at yeah. all. And so, this thing that we're talking about, Christianity and following Christ, it's not a pansy, you know, weird little wimpy thing. I mean, this is yeah. an exciting life, and I think so many if guys just really stopped. And considered who Jesus is, and who is this God of creation, and really stopped and considered that that God that loves those wild places. It's the best way to do it. Yeah, best way to do it. And so those guys that feel that, and like, man, what's that that I'm am feeling? You see, like guys that hunt for the first time, I'm like, holy cow, hmm. um, that's what it is. Yeah, what a feeling. Man. Yeah, God. it's it's God's. God is passionately pursuing. So there's the passion of pursuit. Um, he is passionately pursuing his most favorite and cherished creation. And that's you through the outdoors. And that's what you're feeling. So what did we, uh, did we leave anything out that you want to talk about? Time flies, man, on this thing.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know, man, I've had such a good time. Just really, uh, getting to know you better through this. And, uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it just—it's—it's a—it's a, it's a, it's a good—it's a good conversation to continue to have, right? And I think yeah. don't think enough people are having it. So I'm down to spend hours on hours on here just talking about cooking, talking about the outdoors, talking about Christ. And yeah. the more we can talk about these things, the more um, reach we can have on people who may not know all those blessings that He's bestowed upon us. So. Um, right, man. Great conversation, right. and uh, I think we can have plenty more of them. We can, right on, man. We can create wild game recipes. We can yeah. hunt together. We can do all those yeah. things, and uh, I think I think that's something that we can really, really pursue uh, moving forward, too. Yeah, man. Let's do it.
0: Thank you, Chef Jean-Paul, for spending time with uh, with me today. I, I hope we can connect when you come back home. Go catch a few tail and redfish, or if you come home during teal season, go, go get us some a few teals for the pot. Uh, you guys, please hit Chef Paul up, Chef John Paul up. All of his contact information is in the show notes. Uh, make sure you also go to Tanglefree.com, enter the promo code Passion at checkout, and get free shipping on your entire order. Tanglefree.com, Tanglefree.com, Tanglefree.com. And finally, make sure to subscribe to the show. It really helps us move up the charts. And you guys have been amazingly supportive so far. Show is doing really, really good good numbers. Um, and that's all because of you and we appreciate you. So make sure you subscribe to the show and until next time, bye-bye y'all.